British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is November 1st, 2018, and this is episode 110. Politicoast is the BC Politics Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicoast Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash Politicoast. I'm Scott Glenboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. As always, the music you're hearing is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. On today's show, we're going to be talking about by-elections, electoral reform, and carbon taxes. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Thursday is going to be a big day for us next week. On the afternoon, I'm going to be at Vancouver PodFest talking politics and podcasting with Charlie Demers and Alex DeBoers from CITR, and I don't know how that's going to go, but it'll be an hour at Vancouver Public Library. It's free, so come by and say hi. And you can find out all about that in the show notes or at vanpodfest.ca. And we've also just confirmed that we will have a special pub night next Thursday. This is a little bit spontaneous because the, I don't know, BC NDP and Liberals just got their shit together with the media and announce this great proportional representation debate between John Horgan and Andrew Wilkinson. That'll be happening on 7pm on Thursday, November 8th. So we booked out the Drive Coffee Bar on Commercial Drive. Address will be in the show notes. We'll open doors at 6pm. You'll be able to get a beer. It's a licensed facility. You'll be able to get a sandwich. If you spend enough, we won't owe them money. Hint, hint. And we'll stick around there till 8.30, and if we want to keep chatting, we'll figure something out and go somewhere else. But we hope to see you there. And if anyone has any technical issues with the podcast, we had an email about someone who wasn't getting new episodes. We did move the podcast to a new host a few weeks ago. It shouldn't have changed any feeds, but if you're not getting the new episodes, email me and let me know what's going on. It might be that you just need to unsubscribe and resubscribe or go to our website and click the subscribe buttons there. These things are all a bit finicky and we do our best to make sure it's as easy as possible. But the good news for us is it's slightly cheaper and slightly faster to get episodes online. So I do appreciate the new site and our stats look better. It looks like we have three or 400 more episode downloads per week than we were on SoundCloud. So yay for Simplecast. And first up, Bye bye by election. We were hoping, or at least I was hoping, there would be this by election in Burnaby South because I'm moving there soon, maybe, hopefully. Well, and you know what? Now you don't have to worry about that yeah. because scheduling will probably work out better for you. Yeah. Justin Trudeau this week called the Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands, and Rideau Lakes by election, which we got to get better at naming these ridings at this point. Uh, that by election. It still beats like. First district of Ontario. Yeah. Had some flavor to it. It's it's a mouthful. Uh, that by-election will be called December 3rd. You know what? Maybe what it was is maybe he thought this was four separate ridings <laughs> with all the hyphens and ands in there that he's just like, oh, I thought I called four by-elections. Oh, that's only one. Whoops. No, this is where conservative Gord Brown passed away and they needed to 
or replace him. Fill the seat. Fill the seat. And that by-election has been called for December 3rd. So Brown won with 47% of the vote in 2015 and much higher than that before that. The Liberals came up to 40% last year or in 2015. The NDP was doing better before that in the big 2011 election, but this looks like a pretty safe conservative seat if even in the liberal wave it was still blue. Or maybe it was just a Gord Brown seat. It's probably a fairly safe bet that it'll be a conservative hold. But the thing people were looking for is it's not just Burnaby South. There's also Outremont, where Tom Mulcair disappeared, and York Simcoe, where Peter Van Loan resigned from. York Simcoe is a very conservative seat. It was over 50% in the last election. Outremont was becoming an NDP safe seat, but that was probably because of the strength of Tom Mulcair in that riding. It's yeah, probably like, in leaders play. tend to hold their seats. It's hard to read into that more than it. And you have Burnaby South, where Kennedy Stewart resigned. And Justin Trudeau, when asked why he didn't call that by election or these others, said some weird quip about Kennedy not or holding on to his seat for the summer, which, yeah, let's criticize him for that. But someone else politicking isn't a good excuse for you to politic. Yeah, the, the whole thing, I just... It, it, Everyone's playing politics on this. The NDP played politics by holding on to the seat after it was for months after the person in the seat and said they were going to step down. So it's hard to really get the sense that they're outraged that the people of Burnaby South don't have representation in Ottawa is really legit. Because let's face it, Kenny Stewart was spending most of his time campaigning here, not representing the constituents. So it's, you know, yeah, that doesn't make it great that the liberals are playing politics on this but it's a by-election people play politics with when the when it gets called and like it's such a minor thing it's hard to get worked up about there is a little bit of a norm of calling all the by-elections that are on the docket at once just probably even just to save elections canada from having to run multiple elections because i imagine it's easier to run four by-elections at once than four separate ones. Yeah, but there's also plenty of times where they've had multiple by-elections coming up and haven't called them at the same time. So it's it's hard to say. The one party that's actually, I don't know, the moral high ground here this time is the Conservatives, who they joined with the NDP and I believe the Greens as well, and probably even Maxime Bernier, because why not? He's got a party. I don't know if Aaron Weir counts as a party. Has he filed the paperwork to the Elections Canada? Maxime Bernier has filed the paperwork to treat the People's Party. Yeah, I don't think I Aaron don't... Weir plans to run as the CCF, but we'll see. Anyway, all the major parties, except the Liberals, signed this, co-signed this letter to Justin Trudeau asking him to call these by-elections and, you know, why won't you pick a date? Uh, we'll probably get our Burnaby South by-election in the early new year because it's one that's just close enough or just far enough that it'll be really hard to justify saying that that'll have to have a eight-month election. <laughs> yeah, they're not stretching this one out until the next general election. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they do stretch out as long as they can because, you know, Jake Meet Singh not being in the House is doing the NDP no favors. Is Trudeau that worried, though, that him in the House will do much more? Probably not. Like, Trudeau is fairly likely to get re-elected but you know why, why give the opponent anything i guess well let's cross the salish sea to where there's possibly going to be another federal by-election but it's really unclear because no one is answering questions well so leonard krogh won as mayor of nanaimo and what he said he would do but he hasn't done yet as far as i can tell 
is resign his seat as MLA, thus putting the numbers a bit more complicated in the legislature. It's possible he'll resign coincidental with taking the mayor's chair on November 5th when he gets sworn in. I think that's when it happens in most cities across the province. Can't imagine it's much later. And it's not unprecedented that we've had MLAs also be elected to city councils or as mayors in the past. It's not a great look, I don't think. Like, granted, maybe being the mayor of Yale isn't that demanding of a job and you could balance it with being an MLA, but... You're still kind of under Victoria for you. And it's a bit divided loyalties situation. So Krogh is still technically MLA and mayor-elect of Nanaimo, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt and assume he keeps his word and resigns because someone else has already put their name forward, and that is Sheila Malcolmson, the current member of parliament for Nanaimo Ladysmith and the NDP. It's kind of a musical chairs for the NDP in Nanaimo right now. They're opened one up in the mayors and just shifting around. And she's saying she's going to run for the Nanaimo BC by-election, which will have to happen before February, according to Horgan, because he wants to make sure his confidence votes in the spring aren't in jeopardy. Yeah, there's a pretty strong incentive on the part of Horgan to get an MLA in that seat pretty quick. And although the liberals have made no bones about the fact that they're going to really try and fight that, uh, by election, it's very likely that the NDP are going to hold it because, well, it's a very safe NDP seat. I think the only time it wasn't an NDP seat was during 2001 when everything except two East fan ridings weren't NDP holds, and maybe once, like a decade or two before that. Yeah, Mike Hunter held it from 2001 to 2005. And in 2017, the NDP won with the 14% margin. Now, the Liberals and Greens have said they're going to run someone, so nobody's making it a easy ride, but how hard the Greens campaign will remain to be seen. They've been doing well on the island. It's unlikely they're going to pick it up. The worst the Greens could do is play the spoiler and split the vote to the point where the Liberals sneak ahead, but I think even that's an unlikely situation. Where things get more complicated is at the federal level. So when Malcolmson was making her announcement that she was going to pursue this provincial run, she said she would resign as a member of parliament to run in this by-election, but that she doesn't think it's necessary for there to be a federal by-election to replace her. And why? Nobody could quite figure that out, including the NDP at the time. They said timings would be announced later. As far as I can tell, the way the federal law works and the Elections Act is once she resigns, there's basically six months to call a by-election. That by-election has to be a minimum of 36 days, which puts us at seven months, and it could be a maximum of infinite. Now, it looks bad if you say I'm going to have a by-election that lasts for a year. a year or more. But realistically, if she doesn't resign until February, that puts the latest date of calling the by-election into the summer, July or August, and then Trudeau could just say the by-election is going to be in September. And if it's when the writ gets dropped for the general, well, that just cancels the by-election and then it's just a general election for the seat. So maybe that's what they're going for? Could be, but that's really stretching things a bit, I think. Because, you know, if that is the case, A, why not just say it? And B, does anyone really expect they're going to call like a four-month-long by-election? 
Oh, but it doesn't end up being four months if they don't call it until June. Well, the the and next uh, election is what October seventeenth, I think, of next year. It's pretty much ha- comes out to what three four months after they'd have to call the by election. Like it's it's starting to get a little ridiculous at that point, and you know that's assuming the local NDP dragged it out as well, rather than call it sooner, which I imagine we're probably going to have one either trying to squeeze in before Christmas or it gets called pretty much as soon as the holidays are over. Again, with the politicking, I mean, half the reason Sheila Malcolmson can't say for sure is because ultimately it's Justin Trudeau's call when to call the federal by-election. For the federal government, I mean, this doesn't matter much. I feel like Nanaimo Ladysmith's a pretty orange seat, so... Maybe the NDP will do really bad, but and it'll be a sort of fluke pickup by the Liberals or someone else or the Greens. Realistically, it's not going to matter much and in going into the next election, except it'll probably help whatever narrative of uh, the party that wins. <laughs> Just for reference, Sheila got 33% in the 2015 federal election. The Liberals and Conservatives almost tied. They were within 100 votes at 23.5%, and the Greens got 19.8%. So it's almost a three-way tie for second. And then the Marxist-Leninist got 126 votes out of 71,000. So good job, Jack East. I don't think this is your time either. I don't think it's ever going to be the Marxist-Leninist time. So that runs us through most of the by-elections that are going on. The one other thing that could come up, it won't, But we could theoretically have by-elections if any of the three apparent recall campaigns that are running are successful. The rule with BC's recall system is, I think it's like 18 months after the provincial election, you have to deal with your MLA. Yeah, which means as of November 9th, recall elections can officially kick off. And that's when you can start collecting signatures. You need to get the signature of 40% of the eligible voters in a riding to trigger a recall it's a high threshold yeah in in that it's never actually been done it's looked like it was going to happen once and then the guy resigned but getting that number of signatures to put it in perspective that's roughly how many people turn out to vote like maybe you'll get 60 it's a little bit less higher but but if you only get 60 percent of the people to turn out to vote like a local election level turnout yeah it's very difficult Nevertheless, the BCNDP wanting to make sure recall campaigns are subject to the same rough rules as provincial elections and now local elections, David Eby introduced a bill to ban corporate union donations from funding recall initiatives, which seems reasonable. I don't know why they wouldn't have done it earlier. And maybe doing it earlier would have been a better idea. Yes, or doing it later. Regardless, like this is a really bad time for them to do it because... One of those three recall campaigns is targeted in David Eby. So there's a natural question of, is this a conflict of interest, which the liberals have jumped on and put forward a complaint to the conflict of interest commissioner that David Eby shouldn't be in charge of changing the rules around a potential recall campaign for him. I still feel this is a bit rich. It hasn't technically started yet. Yeah, but like it's... 
everyone knows it's happening. Like there, there's an active organization. There's a very formal process to the recall yeah. system. And if his bill doesn't touch the pre-recall period, which I yeah, don't but think like it can. I feel like that's one of those things where it may be technically legal, but like it's still kind of not kosher. It's it's not a great spot. And like the thing about recall campaigns is they're basically never successful. You know, he could just wait it out, let the recall campaign inevitably fail, and then put this in place. Like it's not really going to affect anything. Like l- literally, all that could. The downside of waiting is that a bunch of rich people waste money trying to get David E.B. recalled, and it's not successful. But, like, what's the BC Liberals' end game here? Like, do they want to defeat this legislation? Because if their complaint is successful and he has to withdraw from or recuse himself, it puts the question up whether or not the coalition, not a coalition, have enough votes to bring this through. Are the Liberals so, like... We don't. We think there should be corporate and union donations and unlimited donations to recall campaigns. I have no idea how they're going to vote on this one, especially because two. Well, one of their MLAs is targeted too, that being Rich Coleman. So, like, who knows how they're going to vote on this one? Well, then Rich Coleman would also have to recuse himself, and then suddenly also the speaker as well. So it gets complicated because the third is Daryl Plakis. And I do want to talk about the recall Daryl Plekis campaign because I did go and check the Facebook page, which was linked to from, I think, the CBC piece I found. As I was clicking the link and seeing it was Facebook, I was like, oh, is this going to have like 10 people? And it did. It had 10 likes. So no one go like the recall Daryl Plekis page because it having 10 likes delights me. Anyway, the, the point is, I think that this is really just an own goal on the part of the NDP because like they didn't have to do this. Yeah, it's it's good to kind of check it off and it's a fine piece of legislation but like just don't do it eight days before the person introducing the legislation might be facing a recall campaign i mean if they get it through it's no issue (laughs) although the liberals have been holding the legislature up with a lot of delay tactics around the second electoral referendum bill lots of amendments and i have not figured out their strategy other than to want to argue the whole electoral reform process is flawed, but we'll get into that in a minute. Overall, I think this recall bill isn't going to register much outside the legislature, and I really have a hard time seeing the conflict of interest commissioner ruling that he's doing anything like formally across the line. Part of it is that recall campaigns don't work, and so... (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't that, matter that, that, either why, way. Why bring the controversy, though? No, I, I totally agree. They should have just done it a year ago. Yeah, or bundle Yeah, bundle it in with all the other legislative it's changes like they just they've missed made. One. Well, they clearly missed a bunch of things, and so we'll just keep revisiting our campaign finance laws. But I think I prefer that over no changes to them. Moving on to segment two, getting your ballot stuffed. Last week, rather than our regular episode we hosted the debate at the canadian club between seth klein and suzanne anton yeah we had a lot of great feedback to that that was a ton of fun and a huge shout out to canadian club for the invitation we had a couple people on twitter ask what our reactions were because we didn't get really much of a chance to intervene in there i thought we came up with good questions and we got some answers to them maybe (laughs) sometimes Sometimes we got answers to completely other different questions. Yeah, I 
will say I was very impressed with both Seth and Suzanne. They're very bright people who are very good at getting their messages across, whether you agree with them or not. Suzanne Anton's clearly a politician who has points she wants to get to and will pivot wildly at times to get to them. But, you know, we kind of let that go just to, I think, I don't know, give her time to make her case. I did appreciate, though, that Seth stayed a little bit more on the questions we were asking. The one question that really annoyed me the most is, I asked this question about BC used to have dual member ridings, and they were elected, like, two votes, first two past the post. But the point being that we have tried different systems. We've even had a ranked ballot system in BC, and that's how the Socreds got in. But the question is, if we've had different systems, why should we be afraid of change? And she just kind of says, well, they didn't work in the past. And that's a legitimate answer if you want to expand that, you know, we studied them, we looked at them, we didn't think they were good, we have this, and it should be like this forever now. And, you know, we can verify that we rejected it in two follow-up referendums, but or change in two follow-up referendums, but she didn't really do that. She didn't really even give me that. Yeah, in fact, that was the question I found least satisfactorily answered was the, well, we have a referendum requirement two elections later, what's the risk? And the response to that was something along the lines of, well, the government can always change it, but that's kind of ignoring the like, the political realities of going back on that. Yeah, we're both clearly biased in that we're supporters of some form of proportional representation. I'm happy with pretty much anything on the ballot. I know you have a preference for STV, but I think you would still take DMP or... yeah. MMP over the current. At least she didn't go fully down the, you know, goose stepping. No, that, that's just be. for the video ads. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was a good debate. I do encourage people to listen to it. And I did see people sharing it on Reddit or recommending it to others, which is encouraging. And it suggests it was valuable. And if things like that are valuable to listeners, let us know. And we will do more things like that in the future. The electoral reform referendum is going on for several more weeks so we'll undoubtedly be coming back to it we are trying to get an academic slash lawyer type person on to talk in defense of first past the post in maybe a less partisan way or a less partisan apparatchik way (laughs) as seth klein would say and there's also a couple young proponents of proportional representation i want to talk to who helps start the pr is lit campaign which I just think is awesome because it's also starting to make me feel old. Yeah, it's good to know they're young because that had a slight, you know, hello, fellow kids uh, vibe to it. But it's good to know that it is actually fellow kids <laughs> behind it. But there's been some stuff in the news that I think is worth talking about. The first came out actually just before our debate was the ballots had started going out and getting into people's mailboxes. Yeah, in fact, I got mine the night of the debate. I think I got mine that day or the day before, and I sent it off within the next day. Uh, for those who care, I put rural-urban first, mixed-member second, and dual-member third. No, so we have the same ballot, then. I know a lot of people are doing that, but I still think mixed-member is probably just going to win if we get PR. Yeah, I think that's probably the front-runner. It's actually been really interesting. Like the, I've been seeing a lot of people vote that way. But we live is, in a bubble? Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, how much of it is, this is the bubble of people who actually like know and follow this conversation versus mitts members just 
better known. Well, the other thing that seems to be happening a lot is people just throwing their ballots into the recycling bin, or at least people taking pictures of ballots that are being discarded or otherwise lost. And I've seen this on Twitter a few times, but most controversially was a post by Judalyn Tiabji, sorry for mispronouncing that, a former BC Liberal MLA who is in the majority of BC Facebook group and dedicated listeners will remember our interview with Jillian P. Stead, formerly from the majority of BC podcast. She's now in England with a new job coming up soon, I believe. But in this Facebook group, uh, Judeline posts, I'm starting a, quote, ballot collection effort in Powell River for the proportional representation referendum ballots with a goal to acquire a stack of them and videotape how easy it is to defraud the process. If anyone else does this, can you please let me know? We could collaborate. So th- this is just a bizarre moment of maybe the ele- maybe this referendum can be corrupted so let's corrupt the referendum it's such a cynical like dishonest bad faith approach to it like a lot of our country exists because of ru- rule of law but a lot of that rule of law is just norms that we just hope people follow and if you're a jerk and you cheat it ruins everything so let's not and we don't need to enforce those rules and those norms because generally things are good, and when life is good, people don't break rules or norms. But this is not great. Elections BC was sent this by multiple people, I know, and they did investigate, and they did find no wrongdoing. Judalyn probably got a stern talking to of, like, <laughs> if you open someone else's mail, you are in contravention of the Canada Post Act, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's a... Up to five years in jail. Yeah, it's an offense under federal law. Like yes, and if you fill out someone else's ballot that's also electoral fraud so you could be multiple offenses there it's just don't post about it like a closed a private facebook group everyone is screenshotting everything yes yeah, st- still don't do it anyone who's been in these for more than a week probably realizes that people are screenshotting all of the things you say even when you think they're secret even if they're snapchat disappearing in a day just assume if you type it, it has been released to the internet. So while Judeline gets away with maybe a warning, if that, a couple people in BC, and this isn't related to the electoral reform, but this is electoral fraud, and this just came out today, are being charged with trying to vote twice in last in the 2015 federal election. Basically, these two people voted early by special ballot and then requested a second ballot. I mean, they didn't say, please give me a second ballot. They just asked for a special ballot again or went to vote at the polls after they had already requested a ballot. And now they've been charged with making false statements and basically voting twice. One of the people also had a ballot in her possession that she was unauthorized to have, which is confidence inspiring. The reassuring part here is this is a super rare case, as in... I. I can't recall here another one. In yeah, the, you... ar- the CBC article mentions like the last couple and there was like two people charged the previous election. And most famously, there was the what was it? Pierre Poutine, who like was doing the electoral or the no, robocalls. He, yeah, he, and, he was the one who did the robocalls. And there was That's a staffer really... who like stole a ballot box, oh, a box of I... ballots or okay. something in 2011. There was some dodgy stuff from the, I think, the 2011 conservative campaign. But Like, there's one to two charges that come out of every election, it seems like. We don't have widespread voter fraud. That's not to say there's none. 
But when you have, you know, 10 million people cast a ballot, there's probably going to be a couple people who cheat. And hopefully it's not in a riding where there's a tie. Like happened in Peachland. Did you see that? Yeah, where they had to draw uh, names from a hat or a box or something. Yeah, it was a dead tie in Peachland. Something like 840 votes for the two leading candidates. And then the incumbent won by getting their name pulled out of a box. At least they were both cool about it. Let's come back to the PR referendum. The big news, as we mentioned off the lead, is that there is going to be a leaders debate or a debate between Horgan and Wilkinson on November 8th. I guess John picked a date. <laughs> Turns out if you're the leader of the opposition and are annoying enough, you can occasionally get your way, I guess. I really feel like this was just the networks not figuring it out fast enough. Yeah, it should be. The whole pick a date thing just was annoying and weird. So I'm glad that's behind us. Yeah. The debate's going to be just 30 minutes, which feels pretty short considering our debate was like just over an hour, cut a little bit down for the podcast, uh, and probably could have gone longer to let more uh, statements that aren't questions in. But people who aren't going to be at that debate are Andrew Weaver, and I think he's okay with that. But someone who's not okay are the BC Conservatives who are on Twitter tweeting at us and I guess releasing a press release saying they should be at this debate. I don't know why. Well, clearly they're starved for media attention. And, you know, I guess they don't have confidence that John Horton can really sell the province on PR because the BC Conservatives are pro-PR, which just goes to show how much of where the parties come down on this is where they think their individual electoral fortunes are. So the conservatives, to their credit, do actually want it to be a four-party debate, and they would want Andrew Weaver to be in there. It's pretty hard for them to justify being there without getting the Greens in as yeah. well. Yeah, it shows that then gets into the awkward position where it's a three-on-one. Well, the conservatives aren't officially for PR, though. The leader is, though, is it? Like, the leader's so, made some statements along that effect, so right? So the BC conservatives, I think, don't have a position... But the Conservatives put out a, a video where the leader says, we don't have a position, but here's a bunch of reasons the Liberals are scaremongering and wrong about <laughs> everything. So it sounds like they're pro-PR, but they're not. That's not to say they're in favor of the status quo. Their interim leader, because of course they don't have a full leader at this point, uh, is Scott Anderson, who is in Vernon, and that's where they issue their press releases from. His basic justification is the debate's gone beyond electoral reform. The Liberals are fear-mongering, and the NDP are obfuscating, and so a debate between them is just going to be talking points screamed at each other. None of that's wrong, and there is a little bit of me that's like, you know what, the BC Conservative leader would be a little bit of a, you know, wrench in the works. Yeah, admittedly, it would be refreshing to have a someone arguing this on, from the right of center, just because... This debate has gone stupidly polarized on what shouldn't be a polarized issue, at least along the left-right lines. That said, I'm also kind of happy that they can make their complaints from the sidelines, and we'll get to it when we talk about the Federal Debate Commission as a quick take. But if you don't have a seat, if you didn't run in a majority of the seats in the last election, and if you can't poll above 5%, I don't know that you get a seat at the table, especially considering the PR systems will all put a 5% cutoff. Even in 2013, where they were doing their best, they didn't even get 5% in the election. So it's hard to 
really justify giving them a seat at the table. Like they got 4.78% in 2013, 77,770 votes. Of course, you know, if we didn't have first path the post, they'd probably be a lot higher, which is coincidentally why I'm sure they're backing a change or not officially backing it, but definitely backing a change. But to see Horgan and Wilkinson debate this, which will be a nice preview of what we'll see going into the next provincial general election whenever that happens, whether it's 2021 or sooner, come and join us at the Drive Coffee Bar on Thursday or just churn on CBC Global or CKNW at 7 p.m. And I think it will be live streamed probably on CBC's website and check it out there. And we'll have our hot takes after on this podcast. And for our third segment, because this is going to be a big episode, we're calling it pollution pricing now. The federal government was actually last week dropped its details for its carbon pricing backing plan, basically the carbon tax. And the big news, which doesn't apply to us here in BC at all, because we already have a carbon tax, so we're not covered by this, is it's going to be a carbon pollution pricing scheme, which already drew out, I think it was Maxime Bernier, or was it Andrew Scheer? Both. Say, both saying they, they, that they, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant? That was, the, I think that was Bernier. I, they're doing this really stupid thing where Andrew Scheer says something stupid about carbon taxes, and then Maxime Bernier attacks him for not saying something stupid enough about carbon taxes. So there's the pricing system on one side. That's a fuel charge and what's called an output-based pricing system for emission-intensive industry. So basically it's a gas tax and a surcharge on industry that doesn't use enough ga gas to tax through that. But on the other side, the federal government is going to take the money from provinces where it collects that and just send it right back to consumers as checks. I'm just politically fairly smart. Like the revenue neutral carbon tax thing is, you know, the the ideal you get a bunch of economists to sketch out a plan sort of thing. But it gets really complicated when you are only doing it in four provinces from the federal level. And it's also not politically as not convenient as people getting checked, which people really like for some reason. I do. And I think that's the big, the biggest criticism of this. When you go through the prime minister's announcement, it links to basically 13 different pages that are, what will the carbon pricing scheme look like in your province or territory? And then it basically writes up, well, here in BC, you already have a carbon tax. It's pretty good. It passed our approval process. Don't worry, nothing will change for you. In Alberta, they have one. It looks like it's working out. If it falls apart, I guess they'll change it. In Saskatchewan, well, Saskatchewan introduced a carbon plan, but it was a somewhat, what was it? It was a intensity reduction strategy, whereas you have to reduce the amount you're polluting per unit of energy you're using or something. So you can, if you keep using more energy, you can pollute more totally. And it was like weird things like that. That seems like a really good way to in, insert perverse incentives into it. Anyway, point being, the federal government looked at it and went, all right, you did a little, you get like a C minus, but we need to get you up to like a B plus at least. So we're going to take like the difference. And it does that across the, across the country. So each province has a slightly different carbon scheme, which 
is literally what Justin Trudeau promised in the election. He said, I'm going to do a province by province scheme. And if you don't have something, we'll create a backstop. And that's what he did. And it's kind of a mess, but maybe it'll work. Other than the fact the check you'll get in Ontario will be different than the check you'll get in Saskatchewan and we won't get checks. Yeah, in that sense, it's a little complicated, but they went into this thinking they basically had the major provinces on side. Alberta put in something. Um, BC had had one for, at that point, what, seven years or something at that point. Quebec had bought into the like California's cap-and-trade market or something. They had an arrangement there. Ontario was setting up a cap-and-trade system. Like, it really seemed like they, you know, might have to strong arm Saskatchewan on this one, and that would be about it. And that has changed with Doug Ford and... I don't know what Legault is doing in yeah, Quebec. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing. But, like, right now, it's looking like this didn't cover about half the people in Canada, which was not the original plan. So, like, this is kind of making the best of a changing situation. But you know, they, they seem to have done a as good a job as they can in in that. Yeah, and there are some good exemptions in here for people who live in remote communities or aviation fuel for the territories. So if you need a diesel generator to keep your town running, essentially, or your house, you won't have to pay the carbon fee on that because it doesn't make sense. You don't have a better option. Like you might be able to use solar in the north for a part of the year, but it won't be very efficient and it won't work well in the long winter. So diesel is a very valuable thing. So trying to incentivize people to something they can't get doesn't make any sense. And then there's also some, of course, agricultural and fishing exemptions based on sort of trying to ease the burden on cash-strapped industries where it can be very difficult to jump to a new technology. So you want a softer incentive. So that all seems fine. Yeah, overall, it seems to have gone well. The rollout Angus Reid polled and found that in July of this year, 45% of people across the country were supportive of the federal government's carbon plan, and that's actually risen to 54%, so a good 9% jump across the country. And that support actually rose in every province, except Alberta, where it stayed statistically about the same maybe dropped a percent. Funnily enough, in BC, it went up seven points, even though it doesn't affect us. But I guess British Columbians like seeing that the federal government is doing something to all those other people out east. The most interesting stat in the Angus Reid poll is that support for this plan went from 11% to 29% in Saskatchewan, which seems bigger than a statistical error, even for the regional number. There might just be a small number in the Saskatchewan region, but Maybe they suddenly came around to carbon pricing. It's like 29% really, like a percent in the 20, is that really coming around? It's is, getting some there. Hey, the, the trend line's moving in the right direction, but they're not exactly, you know, chomping at the bit for this. That's fair. Biggest change. It's like, the mo it's the most improved province. <laughs> still not good. Still not a big supporter. They get a sticker at least. Yeah. But Saskatchewan, of course, is still suing the federal government over this plan with other provinces, notably Ontario, intervening. Uh, and the federal government has filed its response, and I saw that when I was Googling the federal government's website for all the other press releases. 
they don't say in their press release what their response is, but I guess I have to just assume they say we have the jurisdiction to do this, deal with it in legalese. And so that will slowly wind its way through the courts. And I guess we'll find out next year how people argue and maybe the year after that what the courts rule. I guess the only other thing just on the top level to talk about is the branding has really shifted from carbon tax to carbon pollution pricing. And in fact, I think the um, Tudor even said the conservatives want to make pollution free again, to, almost playing off a Trumpian language there. And it's fairly smart, I think. People don't like taxes. They do let, they may care less. They don't like pollution either. And so saying we're going to price pollution is what it's doing. A lot of their press releases talk very heavily about climate change. Even the response to the Saskatchewan lawsuit is all about the climate's changing. We have to do something, which isn't a legal argument that they can do something, but it's trying to build this moral case, this broader, you know, things are turning bad. We need to act now, not three years ago for some reason, but we need to act now on all of this. And maybe the IPCC report has also helped shift hearts and minds a little bit probably made an easier sell it would be the first time one of those actually sunk in which would be nice but hopefully this isn't the thing that we have to fight the 2019 election over oh it is almost certainly going to be the thing we have to fight the 2019 election over i mean hopefully the pro carbon pricing side wins and we can finally move on hopefully in a year from now but we'll look forward to that debate Moving on to quick takes, as we alluded to earlier, there's a new debate commission set up. Uh, this one headed by ex-Governor General uh, David Johnson. And this is going to basically lay out and handle the rules surrounding the debates for the next election between the leaders. At least the main English and French televised debate. There's nothing preventing leaders from getting together and doing more debates. You know, if they bump into each other to, you know, Tim Hortons and Smithers or something, want to go at it. Or at the Monk Forum or whatever they end up at. The interesting bit in here is they announce the formal rules of what it will take a party to achieve to get into the debate. And you have to reach two of these three criteria. The first is you have to have one MP elected under that party's banner. That's not clear whether that means you're elected as the People's Party or if you are elected and now you are under that banner. Commas matter. The second, so, because that matters whether or not Maxime Bernier gets in. Elizabeth May, for example, is elected as a Green. Two, you must intend to run candidates in at least 90% of Canada's 338 ridings, which everyone has said they are planning to do, at least of the Liberals, Conservatives, NDP, Greens, Maxime Bernier's People Party, but the bloc doesn't plan to because they stay to Quebec. And finally, your party must have attained at least 4% of the vote in a previous election or have a, quote, legitimate chance of winning seats based on some criteria, probably polling data and the discretion of the commissioner. Yeah, I, just given the incumbency advantage, it would almost seem like the first one at least hints at the third one quite a bit but we'll see how that actually ends up getting ruled so in the last federal election the bloc québécois got 4.6 percent of the national vote 
but the Greens actually only got 3.5%. So Elizabeth May would get in because she has an MP elected and ran in more than 90% of the ridings, but she didn't actually meet the third criteria, although she did poll higher than that and may have gotten higher in the previous election. Maxime Bernier needs to argue the first criteria, run 90% of the candidates. 305? That's a lot of He's saying he's going to do it. And actually, well, we're going to be watching the debate. He's going to be in town here trying to set up EDAs and everything. So, so, yeah, he's at least doing some of the legwork, but we'll see if that actually ends up being successful. And it looks like the block will still get in because they meet criterias one and three. Other than that, there probably won't be any parties in there. So I guess it's good to have clear rules as opposed to the ongoing inter-party arguments in the middle of an election campaign that are just kind of annoying and tiring. Yeah. And yeah, the structure of this seems I mean, fine. There were some concerns when the Liberals first announced this that it was going to be a little partisan. But, you know, having uh, the former governor general do it in a pretty hands-off way seems pretty good. Yeah. So we'll see how much fun debates will be in 2015. The Boys in Short Pants actually have a longer discussion of this in their latest episode, so I'll recommend that. But while we're talking about governors general and past ones, we have to talk about this story from, I think it was National Post originally, and now CBC as well, and others have covered it, about how much retired governors general are costing Canadian taxpayers. And it came out that since Adrian Clarkson left her office over a decade ago, she has racked up a million dollars in bills for, quote, office expenses. Because apparently one of the perks of being governor general is when you retire, you can just keep charging generic office expenses for life. And so I don't know how much paper and pen she's racked up. Yeah, and this has only got attention because the past year she charged over $100,000, which puts it into its own line item under the federal budgeting rules. It literally just says Adrian Clarkson. If you had to pay her out a hundred and whatever, $20,000. So some enterprising uh, journalists at the Post obviously went saw that and ran with it. Well, and this is on top of the $140,000 a year annual pension that governors general get when they're retired because they get paid 280 some thousand dollars when they're in office and they get a 50% pension. And fine, the pension's probably a bit high, but I could probably be fine with that. But the covering office expenses indefinitely just seems unnecessary. And I mean, I'm a fairly big critic of the office entirely. As it turns out, when the governor general is sick and can't do their duties, the chief justice of the Supreme Court just steps in and can do it. Beverly McLaughlin actually did it when Clarkson was in for heart surgery. You have the Supreme Court, you know, they have a bunch of stuff to do. They have cases to rule on and everything. We don't need the... Uh, chief justice to have to uh, take a recess from the court to go read a diplomat or sign a bill or anything. Like it's, they're, they're two separate jobs. It's fine to have a, okay, in emergencies, we'll have the chief justice sign something into law. But like, they should be separate offices. Have the prime minister greet the diplomats and have the chief justice sign the bills. I'm not too bothered. But at the very least, there's going to be a bit more auditing and Trudeau's promised a review of these expenses because 
this looks really bad for a government. When, and it came out in the National Post opinion piece from John Iveson, the Queen is more accountable for her expenses than the Governor General of Canada, than a retired Governor General. (laughs) And when you think of the British monarchy, technically the Canadian monarchy, you don't think well-managed, public, transparent finances. You think people who live in a palace overseas who don't know what money is. Or I'm sure they know what money is. Like, well, it's the thing. Yeah, it's on okay. all of it. Abolish it all. So moving to a different agency under criticism, conservatives in this past week have been calling out Statistics Canada for mass collecting people's financial information. It turns out Stats Canada has some deal with ATMs where they randomly picked up 500,000 people's banking information, which they then anonymize and randomize and just do studies to see, you know, how much money people have, what they're doing with it. You can do all kinds of interesting research when you have a whole bunch of non-consensually obtained data. But this includes everything from bill payments to cash withdrawals at ATMs, credit card payments, and even account balances, which seems rather invasive. And so credit honestly to the conservatives who are raising hell about this because that seems not cool Uh, stats canada claims it has the authority under the privacy act to do this and it's totally legit and stats canada does tend to get a little bit of extra leeway because it does collect a lot of private information but generally through things like the census or surveys not tapping atms and finding out what everyone spent Trudeau tried to defend it as well, but I think a former Ontario Privacy Commissioner called for some better transparency here. That seems like a pretty fair ask. Yeah. Yeah, I I get why Stats Canada wants it, but yeah, the whole thing does seem a little sketchy. Especially if, you know, there wasn't a checkbox or anything, people marked it for that or something. Yeah, it's just in the ULA, the terms of service that no one reads. The risk and worry here is that they're doing about 500,000 a year, so they'll have millions of people's banking information on file. And what we've learned, if anything, in the last couple of years about data privacy is that it's never guaranteed. There's always leaks and breaches. And that's a lot of people's banking information to be putting in one box. And, you know, Stats Canada's never had a data breach, and I hope they never do. But the first rule of data privacy is don't collect what you don't need. And... Maybe they don't need it. I don't know. I mean, the conservatives are also the party that destroyed the long-form census. That really seems like a lot of whataboutism, though. Like, it's that that was Trudeau's response, and it really fell flat. Yeah. Mainly because the long-form census felt more useful, and we could understand what it was for. Also, like, if you're being critiqued for being too invasive, pointed to something that was arguably done to reduce the invasiveness. I mean, we could argue that, like, it had a bunch of negative consequences and, like, that's a completely fair argument. But, like, it doesn't follow that, well, those guys over there did something to reduce invasiveness, so we're good to increase invasive. Like, it just doesn't follow. It's a bad talking point. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm hoping for more transparency and better protections of people's privacy. So, while the Trudeau liberals, on the one hand are defending the current privacy standards with regards to Stats Canada. They are actually looking at making a bunch of other changes to the Privacy Act 
through Bill C-86, which is the second act to implement certain provisions of the budget tabled in Parliament on February 27th, 2018, and other measures. Catchy. Not only is that title long, the bill itself is 850 pages, roughly. Changes to the privacy stuff is only one element of it. It also covers things like the broad changes to the income tax. It implements, I think, some of those carbon tax things. Sorry, carbon pollution pricing schemes we talked about. There's some random changes to the criminal code that I think tie into some of the other tax changes. A bunch of changes to employment standards to do a lot of things the government talked about with sick leave, gender equity, all of that kind of stuff. Basically, everything that was in the budget that hasn't been done yet gets in here. There's a bunch of changes to the copyright stuff that relate to that notice and notice regime we have. So if you are accused of pirating something off the internet or downloading copyrighted material, and say Warner Brothers tells Shaw, who provides me internet here, that Ian stole Game of Thrones when he was paying for HBO. Actually, this happened. Then Warner Brothers... Warner Brothers Brothers own HBO? Oh, never mind. Whoever owns it. They send Shaw an email. Shaw has to pass that email to me without telling the copyright owner who owns it. So there's no real penalty there, what was happening, though, right away was some dodgier places were sending ISPs fake notices that included links that were phishing schemes, essentially. They said, click here, and then you'll have admitted your guilt and you owe us five grand. The government is now going to ban that and be very specific about the legislation or about the notice, which seems like a good thing. It's a little outside of, like the budget though like that this was the party that complained about omnibus budget bills a few this years is the, back this is the like megazord of omnibus budget bills <laughs> this thing is massive no one's confirmed that it's the biggest bill ever presented in parliament yet but the the number that stuck in my head when people were complaining about the harper era of budget bills was started with a 6 so this one does seem longer but uh, i'm sure someone will find the exact number and we'll come back to that length in a second the one thing that i was paying attention for in this bill or just in generally was changes to charities reform and i've talked about this in the past i think i talked about this with the ruling in august where the ontario superior court knocked down the restrictions on political activities of charities and earlier this fall the government tabled tabled draft legislation which is something I don't see them do. And it wasn't really tabled so much as put up on their website and said, here's what we're thinking of changing. And then charities yelled at them. And so they changed it again. And now they're basically removing all the political activities limits, even though they're appealing that ruling saying they don't have to, they're just going to do it because they want to. It's a reasonable change that a lot of charities were asking for simply because the old laws and rules were very unclear and no one knew what counted as political and what didn't. And this just kind of gets rid of them whole writ. Now some people are worried that it's a Citizens United of Canada, but the reality is you can already have a nonprofit or business and deduct lobbying expenses. So we already have PACs running in Alberta supporting Jason Kenney and the NDP. So but on the broad point of this bill, at 850 pages, the federal NDP has already made a motion to the speaker saying We have a lot of people who are trying to think and go through this, but it is unfeasible for us to consider it in the way we are mandated to by, you know, our system of governance. 
we need to break this up so that we can consider the different parts in due process. And this was actually something the Trudeau government brought in as a new rule because they didn't like omnibus bills of previous governments. And I think it almost bit them in the ass once before. And so maybe we'll see the speaker decide, no, yeah, this needs to be like six separate bills at least, because I think it changes uh, do dozens of different laws. So we'll see if that goes through. And I'm hopeful. I mean, we could spend like two segments on this entire bill if we tried to actually dig into it. I don't really feel like an 800 page bill at the moment. Even the summaries are hard to follow because just different things find different elements of it. Like there's also changes to First Nations land management regimes. We didn't. Yeah, I, don't I even think know this what is they one do. of those things that, you know, if we actually have the Patreon money to like give us the resources to really dig into this and time and everything. I'm sure we could sit for a week and just stare at this bill and still not have informed enough takes on it. It's that big, right? There are staffers who are paid to study this and they're still having to break it down. I mean, but sure. Yeah, give us more money. We will definitely take it. And finally, David Eby has introduced the previously announced legislation to revive the Human Rights Commissioner position. And Yeah, this is basically something I've been watching for for a while since at least before I went and sat down with Ravi Cologne for work to give input on what a BC Human Rights Commission should look like. The proposal is up already, and or the bill, and essentially the government will appoint, or the legislature will appoint a human rights commissioner who will be independent from the government and will report directly to the legislature. They'll be responsible for educating about human rights and trying to combat systemic discrimination in the province through a number of things like running inquiries, creating policies. And that's, I think, the thing that gets talked about the least, which is valuable about human rights commissioners, is just creating draft policies for companies that don't want to get sued for discrimination. It makes everyone's life a little bit better and makes it easier to navigate the laws that as they exist. The act will also change the timeline to file a human rights complaint from six months to one year. Right now, say you lose your job because you're gay or whatever, you have to file that complaint pretty quickly. But six months can go by really quickly. And so there's been a lot of calls for that to change. And that's just a nice, simple one. Now, you don't want it to be indefinite because a lot of the testimony in Human Rights Commission is based on uh, memory and just saying what you remember happened. So it should be fairly quick, but a year still seems reasonable. Otherwise, it's basically just that. And the there's no details about what the budget for this will be. There will be a human rights advisory committee set up with members of different communities from across BC trying to provide input. The Human Rights Commission has just weirdly been one of these political footballs that when the NDP is in, they create it. And when the Socreds or Liberals get in, they destroy it. And here it's coming back. And that kind of lurch, I think, is what led Bowen Ma to tweet out today. This is why we need proportional representation. And she got a lot of flack immediately for trying to tie a seemingly Fairly disparate... deserved flack. Like, the argument doesn't work well on Twitter, but it is the policy lurch argument that, like, you go from a government that really supports it to a government that really doesn't, and they spend all this time destroying each other's policies and changing, putting in their policies. Like a 4% shift in the vote. Like, yeah. yeah. Th that is kind of fair, but, like, it's still also like a... You know, if we get PR, you know, 
everything we'll will be roses. Yeah, everyone will have a pony yeah. in their back here. And, and like, that's not a great argument. No. So yeah, happy to see this finally introduced. It's been several weeks into the fall sitting when we were promised this in the spring. And hopefully by early next year, this is law and we have a commissioner and things get moving. And that has been Plojos. Find links to stories we mentioned in the show notes at Plojos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Plojos Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.